Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. I'd like to get a sense of how The Incredibles started both um, as a, a story, uh, how it germinated, but also as a project. And I'm assuming this had happened sometime after uh, The Iron Giant. I actually had the idea way before Iron Giant. And, um, my now 12-year-old son, Jack, was a little baby, and we called him Jack-Jack, and, and that's why I named the baby and the movie after him. He was, uh, he was uh, the baby when I had the idea. I started with the idea of a superhero that it was kind of based on the kind of guy that we all know from high school, the guy that's uh, the star quarterback and then doesn't play in college or doesn't start in college and then never has that moment again. And, so I just thought, well, what if a superhero was looking back and he was still relatively young and still fairly vital? But um, once I had that, I said, well, what made him stop? And did only he stop or did all superheroes stop? And uh, is he married? You know, is she a superhero? And it just kind of proceeded from there. But I think that um, at the time that I was doing it, um, I was trying, I had several projects. I was working on The Simpsons uh, happily, but... Um, I was also trying to get movies made, and I had projects all over town in Hollywood, and I could always get on the runway. I could give them a, a pitch, and they'd go, great idea, let's develop it, and, um, but I would never get cleared for takeoff. And every time the, the reason was slightly different, you know, uh, my executive would get fired, and then the next executive wouldn't want anything that the other executive had, or... A, a movie that was vaguely similar would fail at the box office. So all movies that are about the subject are suddenly bad. And, and it just drove me nuts because um, these really cool things were being kept from happening for the most boring bureaucratic reasons. So it was kind of like InsuraCare, you know? It's kind of like, uh, you know, this, this guy can do amazing things, but he's sitting in his cubicle being asked to not help people, you know? And... Um, <coughs> So I, I think that the movies to me were the, the magical super things that were not being uh, allowed to take off. And at the same time, I was having a new family and I was wondering, and they were demanding more of my attention and I was wondering, I, I thought, I haven't made a movie yet. If I do what I need to do, I'm not gonna pay enough attention to my family. And if I'm a really good dad, I'll never make a, a, a movie and I wanted to, to be good at both. And I think that anxiety made me kept returning to this idea. And uh, how did it end up with Pixar? And how did you end up with Pixar? Well, um, after Iron Giant, they had been talking to me about coming up there. I knew John from school. Uh, when a Toy Story came out, I just went crazy over it. I thought it was just really fantastic and the best animated film made since uh, Walt died. And uh, I, I told John, and so we kind of got back in touch again. And, and uh, during Bud's life, they started talking to me about coming up. And uh, we just kept talking, and I was doing things, and they were doing things. And, and uh, when I finished Iron Giant, I thought this would be a, a, a great thing. So I pitched them the idea, and, and they went for it. So I was sort of the first outside virus led into this climate-controlled atmosphere, you know? And uh, what was the effect of this virus on that atmosphere, and then vice versa? Well, um, to their great credit, and it's really completely astonishing, at the time that I was talking to them about coming up, they had had three hits in a row. They'd had the two Toy Story films and Bugs Life. And um, instead of going, hey man, we have it figured out, like every other studio in the world would say, you know, we, we got the formula, baby. You just follow the formula, you're gold. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, this machine drives itself. I mean, uh, <laughs> instead of doing that, they were saying, the only thing we're afraid of is getting complacent. And they said, the minute we start to feel that we have it figured out, that's the minute we're dead. And they said, we, um, we are, I think, in danger if we don't really shake, continually shake the company up um, of uh, not 
continuing to push ourselves. So they said, we want um, new uh, outside, new ideas. We want to do these films in different ways. Um, you know, we have things that we've learned and you have things that you've learned and uh, we would love to just, you know, see what happens. So they were kind of asking me to um, rock the boat and I, I've been, uh, <laughs> I was fired out of my, two of my first three jobs for rocking the boat. And so to be actually hired to rock the boat was really weird and, and wonderful. And uh, so I, I, I think that it was good. I learned a lot and, and I felt like I was very safe because I was with the best people on the planet for making a CG film. I mean, I was doing my first CG film, even though there was a little CG in Iron Giant, uh, the giant was CG. Um, so uh, it was just a, an incredibly supportive atmosphere, but they also push you and um, you know they really want the story to be good, so they question it constantly, and you have to have good answers. And if, if the answer isn't good, you know you better come up with one pretty soon. And um, they push you, but they also support you. And um, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, in fact, a theme in the Iron Giant was this fitful relationship we have with the machines that we invent. And uh, you say in the um, in the silent feature we just showed. Uh, that uh, the, the process of making this film, it was a constant battle with the computer, but, right. but we won. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering about the, the w what sorts of battles those were and how they played Well, out. the computer, from my point of view, some of you may feel different, but the computer actually does have a character, I think. It, the computer wants to make movies a certain way. Um, it wants things to be absolutely spotlessly clean. So the computer is very anal. Um, uh, it wants things to move uh, very smoothly and evenly. It wants things to be weightless. It wants things to be small. It wants things to be plastic. And it wants them to be hard geometric surfaces. So if you wanted to do an animated feature about cubes spinning in a white void, uh, <laughs> the computer would be the happiest little computer in the face of the earth. Um, uh, but we wanted things to be smushy, um, heavy, large, um, dirty, um, messy, and uh, so we were fighting it every step of the way. And it was, I, I, you know, sometimes I'd imagine it was like HAL 9000, you know. Don't make it big, Dave. <laughs> Don't you think you ought to make it plastic, Dave? It'd be much nicer. I, I guess there isn't much of a call also for, for bald, naked human beings. No, um, but it wanted it, man. Yeah. Um, it wanted it. And so describe those, those challenges uh, with clothes and, and, and hair. And also, I within Pixar, you were having uh, to have them push the envelope in those areas. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting about computer is that the, um, uh, in hand-drawn, the process is very orderly. And you, you know, it takes time to do things, and, and, and it's in some ways it's not as flexible. But um, it's a very orderly march towards the screen. Um, whereas in computer, uh, stuff doesn't happen forever. And then it seemingly it happens all at once. And so it's like, you know, it seemed like for years I was throwing a, a thousand decisions a day into this bottomless pit. And, you know, I'd go, is anything going to happen with these uh, constant judgments I'm making? And, you know, oh, yeah, we got them. We got them, you know. And so it's another day, you know, another thousand decisions into the pit where you never hear the splash either. It's just <laughs> <laughs> and and you you go, is this movie getting done? You know, I don't seem to see any. Oh yeah, we got it. It's getting done. You know, and then and it seemingly nothing happens, and then suddenly you get these images, and 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 they're more complete than you could ever imagine them, and all the lighting is there, and all the details are there, and it seems like it was made overnight. So uh, that was very different. But it was also, the, um, we had one, one scene in the tunnel with Helen and there was a, a white flash, you know, just like a streak, you know, uh, for, and I said, what, what was that? Let's go back. And so we rolled back in the film and there was one frame where there was a white line just going from her mouth all the way off screen. I go, what is that? And one of the computer guys went, well, um, that's one of her teeth breaking out of her head at Mach 5. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, oh, you know. And, <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, that's really weird. 
And, and the weird thing is that after a while, you get used to that stuff. So, you know, I'll be looking at a scene where a character is walking through the scene, and there will be a naked version of the character, like stiff as a board with his arms out like this, impaled through this character's <laughs> torso. And he's walking through the scene with a naked version of himself rammed through his stomach. And I'm just kind of going, yeah, OK. Um, just checking. The naked guy won't be there. Okay, I, I hope this is a, a future that we, as humans, won't be living in anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> you never know. I had read of a, a tool that was invented that allowed you to kind of draw over right, right. finished frames. What, what sorts of things were invented uh, to, to make this process go more easily? Well, see, um, that was part of the, the, they wanted to know some of my methods of working. Um, on Iron Giant, we had a very short schedule and a, and a budget that was about a third as large as all of the films that, uh, all the other animated films. So we had to be relentlessly efficient because we didn't want it to look cheaper. And um, one of the tools that I developed that was just, you know, bailing wire kind of thing. There's nothing fancy about it, but we just projected onto a dry erase board and would freeze a frame and I would draw with a marker. And I would say, this is what I think you ought to do. And if somebody disagreed with that, um, I'd say, come up. And they would come up and, and draw something else. And that way we had a very open interchange. And uh, I wanted to continue doing that at Pixar. And of course they did. I said, it's okay. We can just get the dry erase. And they were like, are you sure you want the dry erase? I mean, you know, we can do a much more complicated, sophisticated <laughs> version, you know? And I went, well, I, I'm okay with the dry erase, but then they came up with this thing that saved the images and you could even scroll motion and do uh, limited bits of animation over it and color things different colors and send it to every department in t 10 different directions. And it was very fantastic and, and wonderful. I mean, they're geniuses there. So yeah, I, I hear you're a, a very meticulous storyboarder. Yes. And uh, the, the film, in a sense, is you know it, it, it is made you know in your head and then gets out onto paper. I'm curious uh, whether anything emerged after that that was indeed sort of spontaneous or serendipitous that oh sure it wasn't in the storyboards that um, you kept. Uh, sure, um, the people when I first started um, uh, the the standard way of doing things in animation and the way I was taught too. Uh, was that you use storyboards just to do um, figure out business. So you're figuring out what the characters are doing. And, you know, if they're picking something up, what are they doing? Or if they're doing any little bits of business, you know, what is the business? But the, the filmmaking part was sort of saved till later. And I was said, you know, I always had trouble with that because when I think of things, I think of where the camera is. And it's, it's the way you assign words to construct a sentence, you know. For me, I can't separate it. I can't separate what I'm saying uh, that oftentimes uh, from how I'm saying it. And so I, I don't want to wait to do boards. I'm impatient to do boards. And um, so I tend to work with people who are also into staging and, and all that stuff. And um, I work in them out very precisely. And, um, but I always say, if you can figure out a better way to do this, I'm all ears. But that way, if nothing changes, it will still look good in the film. If no one comes up with a better idea, it will still look good. And partly that was born a little bit out of necessity, uh, too, on Iron Giant, because again, we didn't have any margin for error. So I actually spent more than um, Disney or DreamWorks on the boarding part of Iron Giant. I spent more money and resources than they spent on theirs. And that was the only area where we spent more because I figured if you could, if you're going to make mistakes, it's better to make them in the cheap part of the process, and that way you 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 figure it out and and you know exactly what you're doing by the time you're in production. So we do very elaborate animatics, and and you'll see some of those on the DVD, um, but they have uh, elaborate camera moves, multi-dimensional stuff. And um, they're flat drawings, but uh, the movement and, and the camera work is very figured out. There's one sequence that we did um, that I actually planned to do this way. Uh, the sequence where he gets hit with the goo balls, you know? Um, I actually had the animator animate it. The whole scene went from once he starts to run as one piece of action. In other words, um, uh, uh, he animated the whole thing as one long take. And then I went through and picked a bunch of camera angles and essentially covered it 
from a lot of angles. And then in editing, we did all the really quick, fast edits. And once we had the cuts figured out exactly, the animator went in and fine-tuned it to camera. So um, that was more like editing a live-action film. And that was more spontaneous. It seems like we had very realistic, I mean, the computer animators and you were probably marveling at the movement of the strands of hair and you know the normal folks are just, you know, it's hair, you know. Um, well, that was the downside of the whole thing. I mean, my producer, John Walker, said, look, you know, uh, there's no upside to this because if we do a fantastic job, no one's going to notice it. You know, you know, if we blow up the planet, you know, everybody will applaud, but if somebody's, you know, fabric moves nicely, nobody's going to care, you know, and yet huge resources were poured into it. I, I'm curious, because there was a tremendous amount of realism there with the clothing as well, costume changes, locations. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a choice made as to how the faces were represented. It, we weren't going for kind of photorealism. That's right. Um, there was something else, and it worked because I didn't notice it. I mean, they were people. Um, right. Where in other films where people attempt the kind of photorealism, <coughs> there's something uncanny about it. Well, uh, part of the problem is with the medium itself. Um, the medium has a very narrow tolerance um, because it will do as much detail as you put in it. And if you want to go in that direction, you can go unbelievably far in that direction. But to me, it's a, um, it's a false enticement, uh, meaning that, okay, let's say you're doing the face. Okay, well, uh, do they have eyebrows? Yeah, they do. Okay, do you want individual hairs? Okay, yeah, I want individual hairs. Seems like that's good. Okay, good. Okay, you got the individual hairs. He, does he have a five o'clock shadow? Probably you should have a little bit of five. Okay, well, if he has individual hairs here, he probably should have tiny little hairs here, right? I don't know. I guess. Well, if he has those, then you got to give him pores. All right, pores. It's starting to get creepy. You know? <laughs> uh, and, and the thing is, is if you change the, the style of their face at all, um, they look stylized in their face, but the amount of realism on everything else makes them look like deformed people. And, and it gets into the creepy zone in, in, uh, in uh, CG. And so I feel like you have to take it to a point and say, I'm not going any further. Because every detail you add begs another detail. And pretty soon you have these, I won't name names, but uh, these humans are notoriously creepy in animation, in CG animation. And there are a lot of films uh, uh, that, that I find very disturbing. I mean, you know, even early Pixar films, uh, uh, you know, Tin Toy. I mean, Lassiter jokes about Tin Toy now because the little baby in it is really disturbing looking. Um, but, he, you know, he kind of waves it off and says this was the best that we could do at the time. But um, that's the, the weird part about it is it can, it can get as, go as far as you want it to. And I think that leads people into very creepy final designs. And, uh, I don't know if any of you have been looking at the blogosphere, there's a, th the, a theory that uh, in the, from the 70s or 80s it's been resurrected by this obscure Japanese roboticist they call the, the Uncanny, Uncanny Valley. Valley yeah. And uh, well, at the point, it, it, they say in more pretentious terms exactly what you just said, um, but that also that as we approach uh, uh, something that closely resembles uh, a human being, our emotional response uh, to it, it sort of drops off a cliff and gets extremely creepy. And you, the trick is to take it up to that point, but not to go any further. And I think well, you guys did a fantastic job. Uh, Jerry's Game, uh, actually, a short, did a great yes, job. Yes, and that's what gave me encouragement that it could be done. And, and when I moved up to Pixar. Uh, the Pixar short. Uh, it's the old guy playing chess against himself. Have you seen that? That's, it's really great. And that was my model on, 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 you know, hey, this stuff can look great if you stylize it and, and keep it stylized. And so um, we made a very conscious attempt to put detail in parts, but not in other parts. Bob just has a general color shift there. He does not have individual pores for his five o'clock shadow. Um, his ears are unbelievably simple, like almost like Flintstone ears. And we did that because we felt like um, it's away from the face. We don't want to have complicated shapes drawing the eye. We want to keep everybody focused right here. We also didn't put a ton of little, uh, little individual, uh, I forget what you call those facets in the, in the eye, um, the colored part of the eye, but we also simplified that. And we wanted, we didn't want it to look real, we wanted it to feel real. 
And, and a lot of times what feels real is different than, than uh, what looks real. Um, one thing that I, that I noticed when I got up there, uh, it was in the earliest days of Nemo, and they were doing tests, and they did a test of the underwater stuff in Nemo, and they said, um, okay, w they had a shot of a whale, they had a shot of a reef, and they had a shot of the surface of the water, and they were real shots uh, of real whale, real surface of water, and they said, okay, our goal is to imitate these things. So they went in with the computer, entirely with the computer, and imitated those three shots, and they put them up side by side, and it was amazing how close they got. You could barely tell. I mean, on, on the surface of the water one, you couldn't tell. And they looked at it, and they went, Bleh, I don't want that. You know, who wants to look at that? You know, that's like a mind trick. You know, eh, it was done by computer, wow. You know, <laughs> like, who cares, you know? Um, isn't that amazing? I mean, uh, you know, that might interest a, a guy in a, in a classroom, uh, you know, in a computer class, but it, it's not, nothing compelling about it. So they said, what we want is what the ocean feels like emotionally, not what it looks like. And so they, uh, Lassiter was very good. He said uh, he wanted all the lead art guys to, to, get, um, to uh, get licensed to dive. And they went on these dives in, in Hawaii so that they could experience what it was really like. And then they recreated what they emotionally felt and how, how they remembered it feeling rather than how it actually looked. And so if you look at Nemo, it, everybody's going, man, it's so real. But it really isn't. If you look at it and look at an underwater documentary, they're very different. It's just that it feels right the way the water and the shafts of light uh, work. And that's partially why it's so magical, I think. Um, I want to focus a little bit more on the film uh, it's itself and the non-technical aspects for a second before we plunge into geekdom with audience <laughs> questions. Viva la plunge. What is the time period in which the film is set? Um, it's kind of a alternate future as seen from the mid-60s. It's about right. Um, <laughs> oh, it's about right. <laughs> I should have talked to you first. My perception, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting. I, I didn't know that I was missing something. Um, the, uh, the film blows you away, but uh, it, it resonates, and um, it also engenders discussion and debate. It also encourages people to project their own political viewpoints uh, and, so and social onto the film. Right. Um, and sometimes wildly different. Uh, wh what's, your, what's your reaction to that? And what were you intending to say? What um, would you like people to get out of it versus what they've been talking well, about? Well, you know, what it, it's bothered me that, that people have appropriated some of this stuff and said that it's, it's like right wing or whatever. And, and it's certainly not my view of it. Uh, some people say that when, you know, the thing of um, celebrating mediocrity or whatever is like Ayn Rand and, and like, I liked Ayn Rand for about, you know, six months when I was 22, <laughs> but you start to realize she had zero sense of humor and, and that uh, sometimes compromise can be a good thing and something that makes something better rather than worse. And uh, so there's, there, to me, it, 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 there's something kind of adolescent about uh, the uh, Ayn Rand thing. And that certainly, uh, nobody ever points out that, you know, Bob screws up too. If Bob had simply done, uh, you know, given the, the kid some props when he's like flying around on these amazing boots that he made, instead of like worrying about him sharing the stage with him, if he'd said, look, I work alone, but you know, you're great and very inventive and I think you should do this and tried to harness some of that, a lot of bad stuff wouldn't have happened. So, um, uh, you know, Bob makes a mistake too. But, you know, the left side of the equation sees Syndrome as kind of a bushy-like figure, you know, who's uh, more about looking good than actually doing well, good. He invents a nemesis in order to defeat it. Exactly, so um, <laughs> the, the main thing is, yeah, well, Yes. <laughs> We're in a blue state right now, I think. Yeah. No, what, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to, to plant my flag on, on either side because um, I'm basically one of these people that hates the whole blue state, red state argument. I, I, if you actually look at the way people, if you go by percentage 
Um, it's like varying shades of purple and they're not really that different. I feel that the whole red state, blue state is, is kind of a Karl Rove thing to make it look like it's only the crazy people on the coasts and the rest of America feels this way. And in fact, if you look state by state, the percentage is like eh, 1%, you know, it's basically purple. And, and so I, I view the audience as purple, you know. <laughs> the film did come out one week after our uh, wonderful election, and uh, so I think that did uh, inspire some creative punditry at the time. They could never have well, been Well, the, the funny thing is, um, this guy from the New York Times uh, you know, gave me an, uh, and he was not an entertainment guy. In fact, he was actually, no, he's from Chicago, but he was writing for the New York Times. And he wrote, he started the interview going, uh, this film is kind of pro-Bush, isn't it? And I was like, no, no, really. I said, I had the idea long before Bush. You can't pin that one on me, and da 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 and, and uh, then he went, so you're a carry man. And I went, no, nah, the idea's before. Uh, 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 uh. I'm kind of in the middle, you know. I can see some things on either side and blah, blah, blah. Let's not, I, you know, I'm not, it's not to be seen as a political film. And if I spell out what I'm trying to say, it diminishes the film. It's kind of like, it's kind of like explaining a joke, you know. It's like if you explain a joke, you've just suddenly lost everything. So I, I like it to resonate with people how it does. The most, so... He wrote the article, and he s starts out saying kind of it's a Bush film, and by the end of the article, he's saying it's a pro-Kerry film. And I thought, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and in uh, fact, the, 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 the Iron Giant itself could have been seen as left-wing popular. Well, it was by a few, in fact, one nutcase here in New York, not New York Times. Uh, What's the other one? What's the kind of crazy one? Probably a member of the New York Film Critics Circle who you'll no, meet no. tonight. <laughs> uh, but somebody said that the, the, the giant represented the Soviet Union and saying that the Soviet Union was all cuddly and, and how dare we suggest that we shouldn't have had the Cold War. And I'm just like, you know. Um, but um, the, the thing I wanted to get to is that the thing I'm most delighted about is that it's being discussed, uh, that a mainstream animated feature is being discussed in these ways at all. And, and we had three articles in the New York Times uh, at various times by different people talking about uh, this film in, in a um, deeper sense. And I was very gratified by that. And in fact, there were articles about how the film was being talked about in these articles. So <laughs> yeah. We got to that point next stage. Yes. Better reflection in the media. Uh, that the, these feature animation films often are a cauldron of incongruous pop culture references uh, that are sort of the service of the story. There's, there's a sense in which the references, and there are billions of them, are, are in service of the story, and they reach back to another time. Well, and, and I have an opinion about that. I, I think that there's something really lazy about um, uh, just pressing audiences' button, like, you like this movie, so I'll do a parody of this, and you'll like this theme song because it'll remind people of this and here's a joke from that mouthwash commercial and and it's just like eh, 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 and everybody goes ha ha because they recognize it but in 10 years people aren't going to recognize those things and they, they're going to seem a lot of those jokes to me seem old by the time the movie comes out so I, I feel like it's better to give people the, the sense of, uh, of uh, other things rather than the exact reproduction of a moment, only substituting your characters. I kind of don't like it when movies uh, overtly reference other movies. I think there are ways to do it where if you haven't seen the movie, you, you can still enjoy it. And, um, you know, I, I like the Toy Story 2 uh, thing where Buzz goes, Father, you know. <laughs> I, but, but see, that one would work even if you hadn't seen Empire Strikes Back. So, um, anyway. Yeah, and um, it also has people... Uh, trying to figure out the, se the secret messages and the codes in the film. Uh, but the only one I could figure out was this A113 business. Yeah, I do that, that in every film, though. Uh, so can you explain what, what, what that is? Um, I put it in every film that I've made, I, even Family Dog and even some Simpson episodes I directed. Um, it's the classroom number of the class at CalArts. And when we started there, the whole program every class, life drawing, design, uh, animation, um, every class was in this one room. And now, you know, within a couple of years, the program had gotten so big it was in a million rooms. But, you know, and now it's a huge part of CalArts' um, success. But at that time, it was all in one room. And so that, I've always kind of tipped my hat to CalArts because there was a spirit uh, that we had there where we were really 
wanting to learn everything we could learn, and, and I, I like tipping my hat to that. And is this, uh, do other people who come out of this school uh, do the same thing? Yeah, Lasseter was in that class with me, and after I did it in Family Dog, he put it in Toy Story. So it's, uh, it appears in Toy Story, and I think it might be in Bug's Life. I don't know if it's any other ones other than The Incredibles than that, though. It's something to look for. Um, was Tim Burton in your class also? No, he was uh, the next year. I love the Disney you know, masters, and uh, I love the Fleischer Supermans. That, uh, to me, that was the last time that um, superheroes were done in animation with full-on production values. Um, it, it, you know, and ironically, it's the first time it was ever represented on film, and uh, it was the last time. Then animation kind of got corralled over into Saturday morning for superheroes. So uh, the Fleischer Supermans, to me, were done full-on, and that's what I loved about them. But um, I don't really agree with the idea that 2D is dead. I, I think there is a look to it that, that you cannot reproduce in any other way. I think that we're in a stupid period now where people think that CG equals box office success. And, um, and if you look way back, way back to 1995, <laughs> uh, you'll see that people were thinking that if you took a familiar story and slapped five Broadway songs on it, you'd also have immediate success. So everybody and their mother tried to emulate uh, Lion King, and you know, after some horrible films, they all went running for the exits. A lot of those same people are back because they're sure that if you buy a computer, their bad ideas will suddenly not suck. You know, <laughs> if you put it through a computer, it's great, and it's automatic boss office success. So, um, so we're in a period of lunacy right now that'll go away once a lot of bad CG films come out, and they're coming. <laughs> Can't wait. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. That the schools aren't teaching cell animation. Yeah, and I think it's wrong because uh, uh, you cannot, the only thing that you can learn is uh, moving stuff. Um, there is so much else to learn about animation, whether it's layout or um, character design. If you only teach in CG, it'll take you a year just to build your character. And you, that's a year where you could have been making a film. And uh, the design theories are true of, of, you know, they can be applied to any medium. So I think of hand-drawn animation as the, you know, it's kind of like Latin. You know, if you learn it, you'll be able to speak anything. And, and uh, you know, we certainly have some great animators that are not, do, do not draw. Um, but a lot of the guys on, on this film also do draw. And uh, I think that it's a mistake in a teaching environment to not offer 2D. I'm not saying exclusively. They should also teach CG. But I think it's the, the center of animation. That's actually okay. a very good um, question. Yeah. Uh, the, the different superpowers of, especially with the family. Right. Well, when I was first playing with the idea, I was more interested in the aspect of, of somebody, you know, kind of torn with family problems and, and all that. That's the part that interested me. And I tried for about 10 minutes to think up some new powers that you'd never, ever seen before. And I realized that, <laughs> you know, everything somebody, you know, has done, you know, and all that's left is like, you know, really obscure stuff like, you know, his fingernails grow really fast, you know, or, <laughs> or you know, his, you know, nose hair has power or something, you know. I mean, it was just like all the good stuff had, had long been, and I wasn't even interested in that part anyway. So I just, um, I just uh, based the powers on uh, the, their roles in the family. Um, so the dad is always, in the typical you know, nuclear family, the dad is always asked to be strong. You know, they always say, you've got to be strong. You've got to be strong for your family. Be strong. So I made him super strong. Moms are always pulled in a million different directions. So I had her stretch. Um, teenagers, um, particularly teenage girls, are um, really insecure and, and a little bit defensive uh, when they're going through adolescence. So I had her uh, be invisible and um, have protective shield. Uh, Ten-year-old boys are like hyperactive energy balls. They're bouncing off the walls. So I had him have super speed, and babies are unrealized potential. So that's kind of how I keyed it on it. And, and you know, a lot of this stuff goes back to the times of the Greeks anyway. I mean, the Greeks, 
a lot of the Greek legends are um, flawed gods, you know, gods with flaws that are petty and they have power, but they're not perfect. So I think this stuff goes way back and superheroes are just the, the latest in, incarnation of it. Yeah. Is there a bit of yourself in any of these, in these characters? Even? All of them, all of them, even the villain. And S which I, I was like halfway through production before I figured out that the villain was modeled after me. <laughs> I, I didn't see it, I didn't see it. And, and I'm like, uh, somebody finally went, you know, it's modeled after you, don't you? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I, I, my hair's not that long. You know? and, and they said, and they said, oh yeah, that's you, man. And I went, no, I'm a good guy. <laughs> they're like, so uh, yeah, no, every single character in the movie I relate to, and um, I've either really known that person well, or um, or I've been that person, and and uh, you know, from my own vantage point. I've been the spoiled baby of the family. I've been the annoying little brother. I've been the bumbling husband, you know, to a really patient wife. And uh, uh, so I, I viewed the movie from multiple perspectives. The only thing that I would say that's in common with almost every main character in the movie is that they're all underestimated, um, and even the villain, you know. Um, so I feel like a lot of us are that we uh, are not challenged enough in our lives um, uh, to be the best that we can be or we don't challenge ourselves. And uh, uh, I think the movie is full of people that can do more than they think they can do. I don't know if anyone has the guts to follow up that, that statement with a question. <laughs> but here, you want to so. as, uh, as a storyteller, uh, can you talk about whether the CG liberated you or constricted you? Um, Either or now. Yeah. Uh, it constricts you in terms of um, if you have any new ideas, um, if you don't have the pieces already in place, in other words, if you need a new location or a new character, it is very restrictive because it takes so long to build everything. But in, in uh, most other ways, it's liberating because you know I love being able to really move the camera rather than simulate camera movement. I love being able to mimic uh, lens selection and uh, stuff like that. And uh, I liked working with lighting, which is very similar to, to working with live action lighting where you might want to have a kick just to define something against a, an area of black or something like that. So um, I really loved being able to, um, to move things in space and, and, and uh, uh, all of that. Um, I, it just takes, I wish I could be out of the country when they're building everything. Because that stuff just, you know, we had, we had, meetings where you were only discussing leaves, you know, <laughs> like for hours, you know. Well, how many kinds of leaves would you like, you know, and it's like, well, you know, I have lots of leaves. We can't say lots because, you know, we could spend a lot of money just on leaves. <laughs> it's like, all right, ten, you know, okay, well, you know, ten, I don't know if you're going to have enough variation. I say, well, maybe we can vary it with scale. Okay, you can scale these leaves differently so that they look different when they're actually the same. Uh, what about coloring? You know, okay, so let's have a variety of coloring. Do you want it to be in the center or the, the ah? You know, it's like you know. Meanwhile, you know, it's like one of those uh, 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 you know time lapse films of a dead rat. You know, kind of going and getting disintegrating. You know, I mean, I just feel like my life is going by. You know, yeah, I'll make it. Red. <laughs> so, so, so that being said, uh, for your next feature, um, <laughs> with The Incredibles, did when you saw it in your head, was it a CG film? No, um, I actually uh, uh, did the first artwork on it before I came to Pit Pixar. Um, I came to Pixar with all this finished stuff, and if you get the Art of the Incredibles book, several pieces in there are predate uh, me coming to Pixar in 2000. Um, and those pieces I came to Pixar with, um, it was designed for 2D. It's going to be a hand-drawn film. And the thing is, is we didn't change the designs. We kept them the same and, and just made sure that the same people that were going to do it in 2D followed it through in 3D. A lot of um, my Iron Giant guys came up to Pixar and, and are working there now, which I'm very happy with because they've got a nice, stable, good place that loves them. Um, um, so... Uh, yeah, so no, it was designed as a 2D film, and I think it would have been a good 2D film. I just think that uh, Hollywood wouldn't have um, embraced it because they would have seen it as that stupid thing of 2D equals failure. Everybody forgets Lilo and Stitch, by the way. Nobody brings up that, hey, Lilo, 
it was a success, it was hand-drawn, you know. Whoa, whoa. That's another A113 <laughs> reference in that one, too. Um, but ha has that affected your imagination in terms of what you're seeing now? Do you en envision films no, like I, 2D? Uh, no, um, well, sort of. I mean, some. I have some ideas that I have trouble seeing them in 3D because I just know that they would have a certain thing that you just, it's like a drawn thing. I, I love it, but I, I gotta wait for the stupidity to pass. Um, but I, I know uh, when I talked about doing it in CG, once we, we said what do we what are the problems with humans that we've got to fix, and they were substantial. Once I was assured that we could fix those, I was thrilled because uh, uh, this is this kind of movie is just you know really takes advantage of the 3D thing. I think. Yeah. Uh, I would assume a lot of this, the current crop of superhero movies, which probably made various executives more comfortable with making this film because they're very successful, think, are done you? as live action. Although there's an extent to which they are animated films <coughs> that they're just shot. Yeah, but you know, um, I won't go into this too much. But if you haven't done something before, Hollywood doesn't really want to do it. Um, so you'd think that they'd be enthused, but there there are no big animated superhero films. Yeah, there's lots of big superhero films, though, and people like animation, put the two together. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's never really been done before. I mean, there's like one Batman film, and that didn't do very well. And, you know, I mean, so that's kind of the way Hollywood is. So I think we had to convince them a little bit. Um, Pixar was always behind it, though. Sh sure, and there's an extent to which the film exists in this region between animated and live-action films because of the thing you I, I read about virtual costume fittings and oh uh, yeah yeah you know, we had to have a real um, tailor come in to help us with um, measurements because the fabric would respond and we weren't necessarily cutting it for movement so things would bunch up in a weird way and we go why is it bunching up and we'd bring in a tailor and she'd go well you have to you know fix this over here and <laughs> and, and uh, suddenly it went away so uh, yeah it's 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 really strange Logical though. Yeah, I got a I got a question for Edna. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> Where my jacket? Can you help me out? Darling, you could not afford me. <laughs> I'm saying this as a courtesy to you. Um, I did a lot of temp voices uh, for the temp soundtrack. We used a lot of people within Pixar to do the voices just to get stuff in the ballpark. I was also Bob and Syndrome and a few others. And everyone just, I was gonna, I was, uh, you know, ready to replace all of them. And, uh, <laughs> and everybody liked Edna so much that they, I kind of got conned into leaving her in, so. But we actually had several Pixar guys do other voices. Rick Dicker is, is Bud Lucky, who directed Boundin. Um, did Rick Dicker. Uh, Kari, the babysitter, is done by uh, Brett Parker, one of our animators. Um, Lou Romano, the production designer, did the really tight teacher that's, you know, <laughs> trying to catch Dash, you know. <laughs> and so there's actually several Pixar guys that are voices in there. Oh, the, the boy on the bike? That's my son, Nick, <laughs> who was also in Finding Nemo as the little uh, turtle, surfer dude turtle. <laughs> See you uh, later, dude. <laughs> so th e either this is uh, child exploitation or it's... Uh, oh, no, the exploitation went the other way. <laughs> because I had him saying something else, I, I think bitching or something. I forget what it was. And, and I gave it to him, and he went, he wouldn't say that, Dad. <laughs> and, and I was like, all right, you know. And what would he say, Mr. Big Shot? And he said, totally wicked. And I went, okay. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Chuck Jones was on the stage about 10 years ago, and he had, an, uh, for him, a, an epiphany when he was younger, watching his cat uh, named Johnson uh, devour grapefruits, uh, because he had this bizarre habit of devouring grapefruits. His, he said something to the effect of, you know, character is the point. Uh, it's, it's all about character. And yeah. it's not about what they look like or how they sound, but how they move. That's right. And that's something that people... You'd be surprised at how little people think of that most of the time. And I mean a lot of animators, too. Um, uh, the, strength, um, uh, the strength of our generation of animators, meaning the generation after the, the great old guys that really developed everything, uh, is also our weakness. And that is that um, we, uh, there are more 
uh, A-level animators now than there has ever been in the history of, even in the golden age of animation, so-called golden age. Um, there are more great animators now that are capable of putting you know, really beautiful animation on screen. At the same time, because we are, and it's because we know every trick in the book, because we can look at all the work that they've done on DVD and all that stuff and study it, you know, and they didn't have that. They couldn't do that. At the same time, it's our weakness because we tend to animate collections of movements that we've seen before rather than um, drawing from life. And so, uh, uh, you know, if you really know animation, you can look at people's stuff and go, yeah, that's that little shoulder turn that uh, they got from Frank Thomas and Pinocchio. And, oh, yeah, there's the blink that so-and-so did in, in Sword in the Stone. And, oh, there's the da-da-da. And you can literally go through the scenes and see a collection of things that people have studied and picked up on. And it, they're almost Frankensteining their scenes together. And um, you can fool critics a lot of times because... Uh, if the movement is beautiful, if it moves smoothly, they'll go, wow, that's great animation. And, you know, no, not necessarily. You can have beautiful movement that is not specific um, uh, to the character, not specific to the moment, doesn't reflect the character's uh, sex or age or um, uh, where they're coming from or where they're going to. When you come in, you know, when you go to acting class, they teach you that you're not starting a scene at zero. You're coming from somewhere and you're going to somewhere. There's something that you did, your character did 10 minutes prior that is going to affect how they come into the room. And animators are not used to uh, thinking that way. A lot of them aren't. Um, at Pixar, I feel like, um, you know, I was pre-sold on the place because I loved their stuff, but they are thinking more in depth. Like, take a shot of the audience right now. Everybody here is facing forward. They're all sitting down. They're all here to watching us, but everyone is sitting in a slightly different way. This woman right here has got her, her, her little shawl pulled up. She looks very comfortable. She's sink, sink, sinking down lower. And she's just like, she's like, the only thing missing is a piece, a little, maybe a cup of cocoa. You know? <laughs> she's just uh, very, but the uh, guy next to her is kind of up here. And, yeah, prove it to me that you deserve to be on that stage. <laughs> you know? And uh, the girl sitting next to him is kind of leaning forward, kind of leaning towards him a little bit, kind of taking it all in. And uh, every, every single, if you took a great high-resolution snapshot of this audience, everyone is sitting in a unique way. And they're sitting in a way that reflects who they are and where they're coming from and where they're going to. And uh, uh, I think that that is really the home of animation. That is, of character animation anyway. Uh, and uh, the thing that's neglected the most. Because if you do pretty movement, people will think that it's good animation. And man, it is not. It's, it's, it's about acting, man, and it's about performance and individuality. And we tried to make every single character in this movie move differently. You know, um, Syndrome has these kind of flashy, aggressive gestures when he gets full of himself. You know, when he's a kid, it's a little more like a pup. You know, but it's the same guy moved up the scale. Edna's movements are very confident. She's never experienced doubt in her life. Um, um, uh, uh, Bob is, you know, it, it, it feels like an athletic guy gone to seed, you know. There's a certain physicality to the way they hold themselves. And uh, Helen's got these buttery movements that, that suggest that she can fit into any situation. And I, and I just feel like that is the home of, that's what makes the old D Disney stuff so great. And uh, 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 that's what made Jones films great, you know. Um, and it's missing, I think, in a lot of animation. So in a way that while the technology may have changed, uh, actually in a in sense there's a return the back. The, your film is, is a return back to the films. Also when, when characters are truly in peril, people actually die. Right. Um, and also the, they, they are classics because I, I think a film like The Incredibles can be viewed in 25 years. And uh, that's the goal. Um, you know, the funny thing is, is that people constantly, when you, you get talking about CG, they always want to talk about the technology. And that is not the reason I came to Pixar. You know, the technology was like, you know, a bonus. I came there because they were interested in characters and stories and original characters and original stories. And you feel like this issue comes up during awards uh, season because it's like uh, people don't want to consider an animated film a film. They want to consider it an animated film. And... At, while it's, it's, it's wonderful to be nominated for any award and to win any award, uh, there's, a, there's sort of a marginalization of it, you know? It's kind of like, 
you know, winning best black actor. I mean, on one hand, there are a lot of good black actors, so it's an honor. You know, you're the best of the black actors for that year or that performance. But at the same time, you'd really rather just be considered an actor, you know, or best, you know, old actor, you know. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Well, the, ho the hope with this film, uh, I'm not allowed to personally stake a position, but of course, I, you know, the idea that that it would be considered among the as it is on all the top ten lists and so on, and did fairly well at the box office. It, it is conceivable that this will be nominated for, for Best Picture, and um, it, it, I think it certainly deserves it. Right, and, uh, and, I, and I, I, again, I, I'd be uh, honored to be nominated for Best Animated Film, too. It's just that That's you, you, you kind of you <laughs> want to just be considered a film, though, because I feel like the, the, the job of uh, creating characters that hopefully the audience cares about um, and telling a story is the same job. And and the, the the animation part of it is kind of a technicality. It's it's not you know these films aren't made by computer. They're made by humans that are fighting the computer. It's definitely CG contingent in the audience. <laughs> it's funny to watch the film because uh, if if you watch the film, um, you can always find the CG guys in the audience because. When he like moves his hand through the fabric, there are two people in the theater will go, oh. <laughs> Everyone else will just be going, ah, oh, he's, he's got his hand in some fabric. Well, yes, the fabric. The, the hair uh, behind the ears. Yeah, right. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> CG guys, you're outed. outed. Well, we, uh, we wish you the best of luck going forward with well, this with thank this project. You. Uh, and uh, I, I thank you for taking time from your schedule to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a great, great museum. Uh, I'm going to join. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.